Last week, we read the story of Mary, and today we're going to read the story of Joseph coming from Matthew chapter 1, and this is what scripture says about him. It says, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public shame or public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife and had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God second journey that we're going to take together today is with Joseph from his own town of Bethlehem. We're going to travel with him to visit Mary and then to experience the revelation from the angel that he would be the father of Jesus. And then his journey in making this difficult decision about what he was going to do with this revelation. Remember, Mary was from a small, insignificant town of Nazareth. That's what we learned last week. Joseph was most likely from Bethlehem. We can infer this from when the Christmas story in Luke says, all went to their own towns to register, if you remember that. We know that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, meaning that Joseph was likely from Bethlehem. That was his hometown. Bethlehem was a town of about 500 to 1,000 people. It was much more well-known than the town of Nazareth, mostly because Bethlehem is where King David was from. That's why they call it to the town of David. And King David was known as the greatest king in their history, right? And then Micah prophesied that later there would come another king that would come from the town of Bethlehem, someone who is to rule in Israel and shepherd God's people. And so you can imagine... Joseph, growing up as a little boy in Bethlehem, playing with his friends in the neighborhood. And maybe they would have a toy sling and a rock, and they would pretend to be David, slaying Goliath, because they were taught that story growing up. Or maybe they would put a crown on their head, and they would pretend to be King David. This make-believe and this playing, it would have been special to these little kids, because Bethlehem even though it was bigger than Nazareth, it was still a relatively small town. It was full of working class people. So it was not a wealthy city like Sepphoris that we talked about last week. So kids would not expect to grow up in Bethlehem wealthy or famous. And they definitely wouldn't think that they would become king. But they, but they knew that it was possible because they had heard of King David. And so they could dream. For David, the king of Israel, to come from Bethlehem, from this working class town, and for the new king that was prophesied to come from Bethlehem, it was a big deal. It once again served as proof that God chose 
humble, lowly people for his greatest purposes. And Bethlehem was also marked by its view of King Herod's palace, right? His ginormous castle that was sitting up on the hill. So Herod had this built and he named it the Herodian. He named it after himself, all right? He was not one of the humble people that God talked about that he wanted to use for his purposes. King Herod was not humble, so he named his palace after himself. <laughs> and the palace, the palace was located next to Bethlehem. It sat up on a hill, and it was so tall, around 400 feet tall, it could be seen from anywhere in town. So we're going to watch another video from Adam Hamilton's study where he actually went there and he visited King Herod's palace for himself. And he talks about a comparison between prideful King Herod and humble Joseph that we read about in scripture. So watch this video. I'm standing just south of the little town of Bethlehem. And in the background, what you can see is what appears to be a mountain, almost like a volcano. But it's not naturally occurring. This was man-made. It was made by King Herod the Great to celebrate a victory he had in battle. I want you to notice this. From the place that Jesus was born, from the hometown of Joseph, you see this every day from almost every place in the town. Let's go in and take a closer look at King Herod's monument. Here we're ascending to the top of the Herodian. And you can see here what remains of the artificial pools and lake that Herod built, and the villas in the foreground where his friends stayed. And here, as you ascend uh, the Herodium, you find the 900-seat amphitheater built into the side of the mountain. Talk about a home theater. Atop this mountain, the king built a palace for himself 400 feet in the air. The Great Pyramid of Giza was only 350 feet by comparison. To get to it, you have to walk through the tunnels in the side of the mountain and then ascend the stairs, and finally you arrive here at the king's palace. Here there were storerooms, hot and cold Roman baths, suites, and a veranda from which you could see the little town of Bethlehem. It was stunning and is stunning to walk across the top. I wanted you to see Herod's palace near Bethlehem, his testament to his own greatness, as you think about the man God chose to be the earthly father of Jesus. Herod stands in stark contrast to Joseph. Mark tells us that Joseph was a carpenter. The Greek word, as we've learned, is tecton. And since only certain homes were, certain portions of homes were made of wood, it typically referred to someone who was building doors, roofs, maybe uh, farm implements, though the term could be used of stonemasons as well. They were hardworking and humble people. Now, if you were particularly successful, you could become an architecton. Uh, you recognize that as its English equivalent, architect. Architectons were master builders. But Joseph isn't called this. He was just a tecton. Now, when I think of Joseph, I think of my great-grandfather, whose name was also Joseph, and who was himself a builder and a woodworker. He was a man of his word, a humble man with a strength of character. His, his word was his bond, and one of the great treasures that I have is his toolbox. This is his toolbox, and many of the tools were similar to the tools that were used by people in Joseph's day. They didn't change much over the centuries. Now, here's the thing to note about tectons. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have large tracts of land they farmed. They didn't have herds of sheep where they stored their wealth. Everything of value that they had could be fit in a toolbox like this. Tectons were humble, hardworking people. And it's interesting that Joseph, he was a hardworking, humble person. We, we can easily imagine what he was like. But what's really interesting is that Joseph doesn't have a single line in the New Testament 
There are no hymns praising him. No, hail Joseph, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Joseph was merciful. He was obedient. He was humble. And I think it was for these reasons that God chose him to be the earthly father of his son. Herod called himself great and built massive palaces to prove it. Joseph wouldn't have dared to call himself great, but it's demonstrated true greatness by living a life of mercy, obedience, and humility. How do you define greatness? So Joseph, a humble carpenter who worked with his hands, who knew the value of hard work, who based on the Christmas story did not ask for recognition or praise, was forced to look upon this huge show of wealth at Herod's palace every single day. But God did not choose the wealthy and the prideful to be a part of his story. He didn't choose Herod. God chose the humble. God chose Joseph. God saw something in Joseph that made God think, you know what, I, I really like this guy. That's who I want on my side. That's who I want to carry out my plan. That is a good man right there. I know he will take care of Mary. I know he will do what is right. Adam Hamilton says this about Joseph in his book. It says, the ruins of Herod's monuments stand as testimony to a man who was remembered for his self-centeredness, self-indulgence, and arrogance. Joseph, on the other hand, left no monuments. We do not have a single recorded word he spoke. His story reminds us that life is not about affirmation, wealth, or power, but about humbly serving God and others. Joseph is actually the patron saint of those who give themselves to God, who live a costly faith and never receive nor expect any credit. No one ever prays, hail Joseph, full of grace. Joseph does not have a book of the New Testament named after him. He has no honorific title. None of his words are even preserved in scripture, and he is only mentioned in the Bible a couple of times. But perhaps this is precisely the lesson we're meant to learn from Joseph. He was a simple, humble man who did what God asked. Joseph and his town of Bethlehem are once again a reminder of the kind of people that God chooses. God chooses the least likely and the humble to accomplish his greatest plans. Now you, like me, might have been a little confused about the timeline of when Joseph discovered that he would be the father to Jesus. How did this all happen? Well, it's actually a really important journey that Joseph took that can teach us all lessons today. You, you may remember that when Mary figured out that she was pregnant, she went and she visited her cousin Elizabeth. You remember that? Scripture says that her cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Who is she pregnant with? John the Baptist. And Mary, Scripture says that Mary stayed with her for three months. So Mary was there to help Elizabeth through her final trimester and maybe even to help Elizabeth go through labor. And we can assume that Mary was early on in her pregnancy at that time. And this may have been when Joseph figured out about it. Because Bethlehem, where Joseph lived, was not far at all from where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in Incarum. So while Mary was in town to visit Elizabeth, it would have been normal for Joseph to come visit her. 
we often don't think about Mary and Joseph having a long-distance long relationship, but that is most likely what it was. Their parents probably arranged their marriage from different towns. And so when she was in town, Joseph had to hop on over to see his girl, okay? And while he was there, we can assume that he must have learned about Mary's pregnancy and experienced a multitude of emotions. So a few questions that I have that I wonder about are, did Joseph believe Mary when Mary told him she had been faithful to him and the child was from the Holy Spirit? Did Joseph believe her? Probably not. Um, because it took an angel visiting him later for him to believe her. How did Joseph feel about this news? Well, he probably felt hurt, betrayed, embarrassed, disappointed, hopeless, let down, you name it. Did Joseph have other plans on how to respond before the angel visited him? Scripture says that he had plans, and then the angel visited him, and he changed his mind. So it gives us room to imagine when we wonder about these questions, to reflect, and to even think between the lines about the feelings Joseph was experiencing. Because Joseph was a faithful Jewish man, I can imagine that he knew what the law said about women like Mary, that Mary was to be put to death. And maybe at one point in his anger, maybe he felt vindicated in that. I don't know. Maybe. I can imagine. And then I can imagine him running through all the situations through his head. If he told others that he had not slept with her, everyone would know that she was adulterous and she would die. But if he lied and he pretended that he was the biological father, that they had been intimate before their marriage, well, he could break off the engagement and he would experience public shame. But he could save Mary's life. He could spare her life. At some point during this 90-minute walk home, right, from Elizabeth's and Zachariah's home back to Bethlehem where he lived, sometime in this 90-minute walk home, I believe his anger turned toward concern for Mary. And he considered quietly breaking off their relationship. In other words, he didn't quite believe that she was pregnant from the power of the Holy Spirit, but he still, he still believed she was unfaithful, but he did not want to humiliate her. And he did not want her to be harmed. He wanted to protect her. And Adam Hamilton notes, just as the Gospel of Matthew does, that Joseph was willing to do all of this because he was a righteous man. Note that Joseph's righteousness does not come from obeying the law, which was clear at this point. Mary should have been stoned to death according to the law if Joseph really believed she had been unfaithful. So it was not his obedience to the law, nor his pursuit of justice, that defined Joseph's righteousness. Instead, it was his compassion and his mercy that led Matthew to call Joseph righteous. You see, this journey that Joseph took from visiting Mary back to his home in Bethlehem was a difficult journey of a lifetime. He could have convinced himself that this was the worst day of his life. He could see his marriage crashing down, all his hopes for the future being crushed. He felt hurt and betrayed. He felt not good enough for a wife to love him. It was a pretty sucky day. But in that moment, when Joseph felt like he was at his lowest, God was working behind the scenes 
God was orchestrating the birth of the Messiah, and he wanted Joseph to be a part of it. The best was yet to come for Joseph. He just couldn't see it yet. Anybody ever felt like that? Maybe you have had a difficult journey like Joseph did. Maybe you have felt hurt or betrayed, crushed, hopeless. Maybe you have felt recently like you're living the hardest days of your life. The Christmas story gives us hope that God is working in the darkness, that God is making all things work together for our good, that God is orchestrating for us a future. I pray that this holiday season, you see how God is working in the middle of your pain, just like he was for Joseph. That night when Joseph got home, he had decided on his journey to call off the engagement quietly. An angel visited him and proclaimed to him the truth in Mary's story. She was, she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. She was to give birth to the Messiah. And you, Joseph, have been called to be part of this world-changing plan. And this child that you are to parent is to be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. You see, in all of Joseph's confusion, his hurt, and his anxiety, and his lowest of lows, and on what he thought was his worst day, God was with him. Emmanuel. And this would be most strongly felt in the child that he would help raise. It was a sign of things to come and what things were then. What he thought would destroy him would actually be the most powerful part of his story. God is with every single one of you today. And God wants to turn your pain into your story. God wants to take your tears and build a fountain of hope. God wants to bring a garden out of your ashes. And we know without a doubt that God can do this because in the birth of Jesus Christ, the world was changed forever. Jesus, the Christ child, is hope incarnate, is peace incarnate. God's self was here. God cared enough about us, about you and me, that he would come be with us. He would come to walk with us through our struggles. God is not far away. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. God was with Joseph, and God is with you and me today. And he will be forever and ever. Amen? Amen.